Hey there, and welcome to Time for Chai, the podcast series where leaders in manufacturing, commodities, risk, supply chain management, and digital technology come to share truly actionable insight based on real-world experiences. I'm your host, Jake Jacobs, Head of Growth at Chai. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the latest edition of our podcast, Time for Chai, where we will be talking all things commodities. Today, it gives us great pleasure to welcome Wayne Roberts to the show. Wayne has been a very experienced commodities uh, specialist who has worked through every different level of procurement from energy and packaging analyst at Crafts Heinz. He has worked through to become a global uh, category lead at Mondelez, and then he was vice president of procurement with Pinnacle Foods. Uh, as I say, uh, Wayne is someone who has got a vast experience at both lo- local sourcing models and also on global sourcing. Aside from that, he's also a significant experience within price risk management, which will add a further dimension to our podcast today. So, Wayne, it's great to have you on the show, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Stephen. It's great to be here. Good. Um, Tom, would you like to start the ball rolling? Yes. uh, Again, Wayne, thanks for joining us. And, you know, just how would you deal with the the current situation uh, today at this point point in time? (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy, right? Uh, I live just outside New York City, and uh, we've technically moved to what they're calling phase B, phase two, which is really where the offices are allowed to be open up to 50% capacity. But the reality is those that went in this week, it was like working on a Saturday with just a few people sprinkled around. So, I mean, we're a long ways from uh, being back on one hand. So from a commodity risk management perspective, though, uh, I've heard a lot of great discussion about kind of the impact on markets. You see what happened with the WTI price, impact on manufacturing. I think you've had a couple of guests here that have really gone into what's, how that's impacted, especially in the food and beverage industry. Uh, but the other thing that's been really, I've been focused on is actual deliverers versus your forecasted demand and what that might've done to hedge effectiveness. And uh, just to kind of uh, had a lot of experience trying to get hedge effectiveness set up, get the accounting treatment set in place, and then having auditors be extremely strict in terms of if the probability of your demand is no longer highly probable, they remove the hedge effectiveness or they reclassify a hedge if you're moving the delivery date of when your original inception was planning on receiving it. So when you factor that in, you could have a double hit. Not only might you be in commodities, say like a coffee or an energy product where the prices really come down, but now you're not receiving the product that you might have to take the P&L to your books if you get the hedge reclassified. And I mean, so just trying to wrap my head around that, uh, I would often uh, say only designate up to 80% of my hedge for treatment, knowing that maybe a worst case scenario to our planning would be an eight to 12% missed forecast. So when you have situations where your demand is completely stopped or a production line or plant shut down, you have no deliveries, you know, we had three strikes and you're out kind of rules with some of our auditors. Just the noise around that and the volatility around what that could do to me is a big deal right now. And then even if you weren't working with, uh, you didn't do it on your own books, but maybe you hedged through supplier. If you're not using it, they're rolling that to the next period. And so say you have something like aluminum where you've had contangles widen, you're having a significant carry cost added to the price you planned. You might have already been covered in the next period. So then it gets rolled to the next period. And so you have a significantly increasing delivered price eventually when you receive it. So there's been a lot of work around, hey, 
we might need to readjust models in terms of how we manage price risk, but also adjust the models for how we manage our volume and forecasting risk. And that's been, yeah, really what I'm trying to get in my head around in this situation. Yeah, so that's interesting. So it sounds like there's a lot that, that you have to factor in there. So with regards to the uh, FMCGs within the sort of specifically within the food industry, you know, the need right now and how how they survive, where do you think, you know, the important things to focus on? Is it is it a question of sourcing the raw ingredients, managing the existing inventory or future inventory, or is it all about sort of stability of cash flows going forward? You know, which, in your view, Wayne, will be the most important out of those? I'm laughing while you say that because I can picture that exact conversation with a recent CFO I had, and he would have just looked at me and said, yes, go do it all. <laughs> and uh, that's, you know, all of that matters in terms of being uh, robust through this period. But if I were to think about it in terms of which one of those three is going to change the most, I would say the inventory management. And I think you had a great podcast a couple of weeks ago with Nikki Hunt, I think was her name, and food and beverage kind of space and what's happened there. And so when I think of uh, so something that I've managed recently, which is meat products here in the U.S., the meat industry got hit hard. COVID got into the plants were highly concentrated, just a few plants being shut down because of the amount of workers that got sick. Suddenly, you almost had no supply of meat in special cuts. You had a record prices in the cut up, record prices on select pieces that you might be buying. And so coming out of that, I think they're about 95% back right now to where they had been at the moment. But as you look ahead, and I think, Tom, you mentioned uh, on the last podcast, I think I heard, you know, talking about whether we're going to have a W recovery, a V recovery, kind of the hockey stick recovery. It's like, what do you think is going to happen as you look out to Q3, Q4, and suddenly you're going to have to rely a lot on cold storage and start protecting yourself because now you know the meat industry is extremely vulnerable. And if you're lucky enough to be staying open and have demand, you might not have the product. And so suddenly, whether it's that, whether it's you know vegetables, hugely reliant on Mexico to the U.S. market. Anecdotal data says that the COVID tests are testing positive at a very high rate in Mexico. You look at Brazil where it's spiking, you've got Arabica, you've got the flow of soybeans. Looking at all these pieces across the your supply base, and suddenly you're going to have warehouse and inventory and cold storage using it at levels we've never done. Most of my life, it's been just-in-time inventory. Frustrating for a procurement person because my plant managers were incentivized and their bonuses were tied to low levels of inventory. So every time I had one truck not show up or one rail car, the pressure was on and the heat was all on me. So all those models are going to have to change and the cost-benefit of maintaining inventory is going to look very different going forward than it has in the past. So that sort of ties in with my next question. So, you know, it seems to me that a lot of people are, are, are sort of trying to focus on the short term right now. Is it a question of scaling back on current operations or is it, God forbid, people are having to reduce headcount? Is that the solution, do you think? Solution, oh, I would say the opportunity. I don't mean that in a cynical way, like when people say never let a good crisis go to waste. But what I mean is the opportunity is the reality is if you've got production that's down or you've got locations that are down and you have to bring them up, there's going to be an investment to that money put in, time put in, and you're going to be prioritizing that. I think of a situation in my own life where a former company I was at had a major recall that was very public. Okay, so we have the recall, the product's been stopped, 
we're expecting it to when are we going to turn this back on but when they look at the marketing and the sales uh, investment they need to make to kind of get the momentum back into that product that brand then they look at the quality issues fundamentally and operational challenges they had that created the recall to begin with they made the decision that the investments were not worth it where the the share and the profit margins had been declining in that category and they retired the brand i mean it was a significant brand and they just said this brand is you know going into the museum we're closing it down we're shutting the plant down i think a lot of those conversations are going to happen and you're going to see a prioritization of where they invest so there's going to be an impact there and then i think technology will play a big part in that as well okay and i mean how i suppose how can you articulate that how do how will technology help in your opinion what kinds of technology will help i think it's going to speed up that whole impact on operations as well as headcount i mean right now if you had a plant that was mostly or fully autonomous you didn't have a lot of people in that plant <laughs> if you didn't have a lot of people you naturally had social distancing you naturally didn't have a lot of uh oversight over you know COVID at that plant so that plant could keep running so as if technology didn't have enough reasons to to implement from an efficiency standpoint and where we're going oh now you have an entire another layer of risk that technology can solve in helping to reduce your exposure so that if a situation like this happened again if we get a wave two or wave three the more protected you are because in a way you're relying less on a lot of manual processes. So I'm a member of the uh, Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals, CSCMP. They do an annual supply chain innovation award. Past winners have been people like companies like Intel and J&J. &J. The way they're using AI, the way they're using blockchain and all of these new technologies to transform the manufacturing, transform logistics, transform the warehousing, it's phenomenal and i think this is just going to speed it up as if it needed an extra boost i think 2020 is going to be an accelerator for all of that because now you have not just let's improve efficiency not just we can invest long term now you have we can actually stay open kind of questions if we implement this technology quicker so wayne what would uh, what would be your approach to to managing exposure to market volatility yeah, you know, a common misperception that I, I see out there is just really kind of a misperception around risk of the derivative that you're using. Uh, for instance, the language often used is plain vanilla when you're referring to futures, whether it's on an exchange, whether it's a swap, whether it's forward price, fixed pricing with your supplier. And Companies tend to prefer that. I think finance likes it because you know your fixed price, you can budget it, you can plan for that. Therefore, there's no risk. I think what we've just seen on volume, that all assumes your volume is constant. Uh, options have always been a challenging, a higher order. For whatever reason, I think because it's harder to, you can't exactly say what your final covered price is going to be. They don't want to go there. Uh, there's usually a much higher order in terms of acceptance or getting approvals. Sometimes I've seen it actually be banned in policy in some cases. So what you have is at a time when you really don't have certainty around your volume, one of the best tools you might want is to something that can handle different price outcomes and can handle different volume outcomes. And I mean, you're avoiding cost. I mean, what more, if you're in March and April and your production lines are stopped, you'd exactly want that, the right but not the obligation as they say to have a specified volume at a specified price within a specified time. 
And that's what optionality gives you. So to me, in terms of how I handle the market risk is really seeing opportunities right now to lay out this volume is a real issue. Maybe the volatility around volume is as great as the volatility around price. And we should be setting up protection to the company in case you have collapse in prices, in case we get a wave two. So I would hope to see optionality, have the conversation shift in terms of where the risk is at. Yeah. So Wayne, do you generally take a, a more fundamental or, or quant, uh, quantitative approach when you're, when you're managing, managing the markets? For me, I, I've taken a fundamental approach and I believe that's because my focus has been on hedging, which has been for the purpose of protecting margins. So in terms of uh, consumer products, you're talking about elastic products. You can't raise pricing. You think of a category like uh, confectionery or snacking. These are kind of impulse buys. You're kind of almost looking for a reason not to buy them, but if you're in the checkout line, the price is good. You see the two for one, you grab it. Also, when you come back next time, you're not expecting those prices to move because they're not the things that you actually need to be buying anyway. And you're almost, you know, give me an excuse not to buy it, but yet you still want to buy it. So to me, when you're dealing with those kind of products, you're dealing with products that you don't move the price very often. You, you might set the price, say in some, some areas I know in Europe, you kind of set prices annually with your grocery customers. Other ones might be quarterly. Other ones might be after a significant back and forth battle almost with your grocery customer. So knowing that you can't set price, kind of the mandate that we always had was hedge until you can price. So if you know the window that you fixed your sales price, then you want to come in behind that and hedge it. And that guarantees your margin, assuming demand is constant. And so because of that, we spend a lot more time in what I would call a dynamic conversation with purchasing, with finance and with sales to really understand the brand strategy and what they're doing. I think you had a podcast of Robert Fig from the Meadows Group was on this podcast. If any listeners haven't heard that, I would definitely recommend going back at it, back and listen to that. He, he spoke about this collaboration. And at the company I was at, we called that pricing net of commodities was a language we used. It was a metric, kind of an algorithm, if you would, that would measure your inflation backed off by your productivity savings, backed off by your revenue management strategy, and then supported by backed off by hedging. So kind of strategic pricing, strategic savings, and strategic hedging together. So we would spend a lot of time looking at how elastic, how do consumers respond to changes in price? Also, what is the magnitude and the duration of a commodity price movement that would lead our industry to move pricing or lead our competitors to lead pricing? And that analysis and that data would then inform us on which tool to use and kind of the length of coverage we would have, again, all for the purpose of protecting margins. So in that context, it's more of a fundamental approach in terms of how we, again, just protect the company's margins. That's really interesting. When you're facing off against the market and you're looking at prices, market pricing and volatility and what's going on, what do you use to sort of in, make informed decisions? You know, what sort of data sources do you look at or what sort of insights would you tend to tap into? Yeah, we tend to uh, first where I would focus in terms of really understanding to minimize noise. So uh, even within the same company, a change of leadership, a change of back office support, even how we're doing as a company, are we ahead of plan or behind plan? 
would affect, say, where I want to place my hedges. It would affect where, what tools I use. And, and again, what, then what data I'm using to draw that. So, you know, I might move a hedge onto a supply of books, or I might try to construct something directly with, um, with an OTC partner, or, or on the exchange if I need to move it off of supply of books because we have a lot of savings initiatives going on, and I need to not hamstring the ability to change suppliers. So to me, really, again, getting that data to understand how do I make adjustment and how do I get as much flexibility in my piece, and then pulling in what I need to make that case. So again, if we're doing a uh, price forecast and I have a specific price point that I had to give because that's what the business needed from me, what's the 360 view going on? How does that compare with historical prices? How does that compare with the current market curve? How does that compare with external forecast? So, and then in terms of external forecast, is there someone that has the time and resources to really building a robust piece that looks at a lot of those pieces? Um, and I mean, that would actually have pause here, Stephen. I think I've been, I've read a little bit of what you guys are doing at Chai and just kind of curious what you would say, what are the data input streams that you are putting together in terms of the forecast that you create? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the way, you know, the way that we view it is we will take structured, unstructured, and alternative data sources that we know or we strongly believe will have an impact on the commodity that we are tracking. Um, and depending on the, on the commodity and depending on the time duration of the forecast that we are, we're, we're trying to predict, there's usually around about eight or 10 different sort of family inputs that we use. And so on the structured side, it would be things like, which, you know, this is data that is available, but it's, you still have to convert it into some sort of a structuralized format. So it's things like commitment of traders data, inventory data, macroeconometric data. Some of the other signals then that we would look at as well within that will be, we would look at foreign currency. So we, we have an FX family input that is related to currency that we are trying to predict. So it could be in the case of oil, it's obviously going to be usually dollars. In the case of metals, it could be uh, Aussie dollar, Canadian dollar. We have other inputs that we have designed ourselves. So we have a thing called the CTA in, in, in input, which is where we know from previous experience how some of the larger CTAs and managed money come up with 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 uh, price predictions and whether it's momentum driven or trend following. And so we, we we sort of replicate those signals. And then on the sort of more fundamental side, we would look at sort of things like seasonality impacts inventory data, we have a curve input. So we look at, you know, what degree of market is in contango versus backwardation. And obviously that's been quite impactful on our signals, certainly on the oil markets over the last sort of six months or so. So we, we look at a range of different inputs that we think are important that drivers of what the underlying price or, or market will do. That makes sense. That's great. So that's exactly where I would look for from for an external factor as kind of the foundation to com to compare and show. And then I would accompany that. I would like a 360 view also on things that might be more anecdotal, but like what's the farm level view going on? <laughs> what does it look like someone standing in the Mississippi? What does it look like for someone in Brazil? How are they actually seeing the trucks moving and are the roads muddy or what? Oh, you know, in the Philippines, you're bringing in, uh, China says the African swine flu is not a factor. And yet someone there at the imports, there in the Philippines is saying every kind of box we get 
is is showing positive. So adding that to add the color around it, again, my goal is to eliminate blind spots. And so the company can kind of see the full spectrum and here's where the best intelligence out there is. Here's kind of what some others who are kind of outliers in the industry might be seeing. And then how that informs us in terms of the risks and opportunities versus, you know, kind of where we're at in our call, just so they, they can compare my call constantly and we can adjust strategies to look at the range of outcomes, not just say, here's my call, let's book next year. So, so this is the thing. I mean, it, it, you know, as, as we know, and as you alluded to, there's, a, there's a, a high degree of information out there that is available to try and help people make decisions. I mean, how do you try and synthesize all that information into one sort of coherent view? And then how do you articulate that? So again, I would have an inf a kind of a in-house view that we kind of have, this is a bias. Sure, what I like to do is show a heat map where I'm looking at where are we at historically, kind of looking at how much downside risk, how much upside risk, okay. and then try to put a probability around that. And how I would do the probability is take a forecast like what you provide. Someone who does a lot of robust, let the data speak for itself kind of forecast, compare that to the market curve, and then compare that to kind of the outliers that we see to kind of try to get a hint around risk. And so those would be the data sources so that when I go in, I'm not only just giving my voice, I'm giving expert third party voice, as well as, you know, who's looking at it differently. And then trying to then showing how a strategy would be robust enough against that whole range of outcomes and where we would land. And at the end of the day, you hope you're trying to guide them to say, hey, there's way more upside risk than downside risk, or there's a lot of downside risks of just covering, you know, might protect you from moving up, but it's totally going to cost you relative to your competitors. And the danger there is, I think, in terms of a food company, what I constantly see is we think we can't raise prices, therefore we need to hedge flat. Yes, we can't raise prices, but we can certainly have a race to the bottom, especially if you're in products, say like a chocolate chip cookie, that a lot of com competition is in the marketplace, a lot of premium products. And if they go down in price, you're going to have to go down in price. Yeah. In your yeah. head, we're always looking at can we raise pricing, but the question is, will you discount it? And that's where, again, I would go back to options are sometimes much safer, but we don't recognize that. So, Wayne, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of folks out there that, uh, that might be listening that have to manage stakeholders. And many of these stakeholders might not necessarily understand market movements. So, in, you know, in your experience, you know, how would you be managing stakeholders or advice you can give to folks out there uh, for this, the current situation? Again, building on what I just said, I like to focus on the range of outcomes and they might not be following the markets, but you can quickly see like on a one page, what I would call a heat map, where are we relative to history? You know, sometimes just visually you can see it and say, okay, we need to be taking protection. We need to uh, move forward. I think the key piece, though, is uh, tying everything back to the product. And to me, tying everything back to the product is really asking the questions, how comfortable are they with their retail strategy? How confident are they in their demand forecast? How they answer that question opens the door to having a conversation around a strategy that includes some optionality and can allow you to really bring up we need to be protecting on the volume optionality as well as worried about the market risk. 
And so it's really identifying what they need, what's concerning, what's their pain points, and then having your entire message articulating on a strategy that meets that pain point and protects them. And again, that's an area where I might be in an environment like this if we're behind plan. I might be saying, yes, we've always done exchange traded. We feel comfortable with that. But you know, I have my suppliers locked in. We're not making any changes in the so period. I might take some things off the books in order to kind of allow myself to maybe put in some optionality that I might be able to do through a supplier that I couldn't easily get approved in the time frame that I would need to do it. And so really it's addressing their needs, understanding that, and that gets back to that whole conversation about being connected from a procurement, from a sales and from a finance standpoint. Well, you know, switching over to, to commodity education, uh, Wayne, at the, at the JP Morgan Center for Commodities, you know, we, we seek to offer education to, to students uh, across the broad commodity space. And uh, what specifically, you know, you know, specifically those in, interested in commodity risk management, you know, what, uh, what kind of skills would you advise those seeking to enter and advance their careers in this area? Yeah, so the skills, I think I go to also um, just the soft skills of curiosity. Uh, curiosity to me has been one of the biggest thing. I think you mentioned, Tom, last time you had a great discussion that says, one thing you love about these markets is every day is different. The yeah. entire outlook you had in February has completely changed. And so that to me is about being, you know, just curiosity at all point. You know, A is going to impact B, which is going to impact C. And you're constantly just thinking, how does this impact uh, for soccer? I've had a, a, I'll just give a couple examples. There was uh, two people I can think of specifically that had no commodity background coming out of college. And both of which have built extremely successful commodity careers. The first one was actually a temporary employee that our company picked up in our indirect procurement team. So come in doing IT procurement. Uh, which is about as far removed from the direct procurement hub, uh, but kept coming down and talking on lunch, coming down, asking questions, started grabbing articles that we would have, uh, doing some exercises in the CME that they allow. And then uh, ultimately I'd been an instructor when I was in grad school of a futures and trading class. So I still had all my class notes and books and homework assignments and exams. And he just started taking these and going home and working on that. When we had an opening, and come up in my team, I felt we were strong enough as a team that we could you know, take the risk on this new talent. Uh, again, because the curiosity and the hunger and the desire for learning was there. He came in initially to support our grains and oils team, uh, started working with us on really trying to manage and get a grasp on basis markets, moved into the sweetener team, did a fantastic job there and was ultimately invited into the coffee team. And today he's flipped to the other side. He works for a trade house down in Miami, uh, trading coffee and loves it. And it's just, you know, just his career has just taken off. And uh, so that's an example. And I think it all started with the curiosity. Another example, I had this person, uh, she came from Columbia, had an engineering degree, became an intern in our external manufacturing team. Again, it was a supplier that was using a lot of our oil. So I got to know her, she just continued to ask questions. So when she graduated, opened up a slot on my team as an oils analyst, supported that. She would go to industry events and just ask, meet everyone there, ask every question possible. And she would come back with a fully informed kind of broad understanding of what was going on from almost every participant. I mean, just phenomenal in terms of 
the context that she would know about what's happening on yeah. the ground. She ultimately ended up moving out to Southeast Asia to get some global experience. So she worked in Malaysia with Nestle and is now getting her MBA at Oxford. So again, two people, no commodity experience at all. And we used to believe we had to hire commodity people. Almost all of us had an ag econ degree or had been working for Refco LaSalle in uh, Chicago. The entire team was all kind of one mold. And there was a lot of benefit from bringing in these people and they they thrived in, in the commodity space. Well, that, that, that's great, Wayne. You know, for our, the, the students that might be in the audience, you know, what types of classes would you recommend that they, they take from your from your experience? Yeah, I would uh, focus. I, I like it when people focus on kind of those niche classes or niche uh, degrees. I have a friend who just texted me that his son is going to go to study environmental and energy resource management at West Virginia University. I mean, I didn't even know degrees like that existed. I love that because the classes he's gonna take will be on economics, on in the environment, on business management, on resources. It's just, you know exactly kind of the skill set and those kind of focused, whether it's a class that you're taking in those areas like applied mathematics or applied statistics, you know when they come in, you hire them, or as even as an intern, they come in and can deliver right away. There's a practical applied application that they get and a very specific that then they can cross over. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of curious. I know you have a lot going on there, you know, University of Colorado in Denver from a JP Morgan commodity perspective. Can you give me a little bit of understanding of what you're doing there? Because I think that's the kind of program that I find you fascinating. Know, we I think the the uh, the niche that this program offers that it's you know across ag commodities, metals, oil and gas, and energy, and you know just trying to get students an understanding of production side through the supply chain, all the way to the trading floor, how how and, and, you know market fundamentals, how the logistics, all that. So just a broad overview, and then under you know and emphasizing the quantitative side too, you know forecasting side of things. How to understanding the tools available to get data, analyze data, and make recommendations out of it. That's you know, if I had to kind of summar summarize that, that's that's kind of the focus. That's awesome. I mean, that's that's exciting that you know they can come over and apply that in any any area of the company and any area of commodities. I think that's great. I also think a lot of universities are doing a good job of having groups, kind of. Uh, things that extracurricular activities that you can join a one in specifically uh, Virginia Tech has one called coins it stands for commodity investment by students as far as I know it's the only commodity run endowment the student run endowment that the students make the decisions and are investing the university money do you have teams there they've set up in terms of ags and metals energy and they have exactly what you just said, even as sophomores and juniors, they're like presenting strategies, getting critical feedback, having serious, strong debate, implementing it, losing a position and having to course correct. So I've had interns from there as well as a new hire and they come in on day one, able to actually vocally contribute to a conversation and debate because they've been doing it. And I think you can't, mm. You just can't get away from that real, you don't learn that in the paper, what you're talking about, you don't learn that easy in the classroom, it comes from hands-on experience. Yeah, well, that's great. Uh, very interesting and very, very apt point, that last bit, actually. I mean, there, there's no substitute from practical experience when you're when you're trying to navigate some of these markets. Well, my final question, um, 
looking back over your career in commodities, is there any other pieces of advice that you would like to pass on to our listeners? I would think I would build on what we were just talking about. I guess it's a phrase, skin in the game. The importance of having a skin in the game, having that kind of hands-on pulse of what's actually happening. A way to do that, I would think, uh, there's some tools out there. There's an, uh, not to push this one, I'm sure there's others, but TD Ameritrade has an app called Think and Swim. Anyone can download it. I've seen a lot of students. They're the ones that introduced me, one of my interns. Yes, you can trade, but they also have a whole simulation. You can put it in a simulation mode, you know, set a dollar amount, and it runs at a 15-minute delay, and it actually lets you trade in commodity markets. So you, you can be trading corn, you can trade copper, gold. To me, what I would recommend, and one thing, whether it's that or whether it's on your own with real, is being, uh, say, in the morning, picking up the news, whatever news you like to read, whatever market news you look at, is to do it for the purpose of identifying a trade. Just every day, pick a trade. Whether it's on the simulation or whether it's something with low risk like an ETN or ETF. And it makes you read the news in a different perspective. You're not spending time in the editorials. You're like connecting dots. You're looking at FX. You're looking at central bank. You're looking at things. You might make a trade in copper that gives you an understanding. It might be nothing to do with what you would do professionally. But knowing what's happening in the copper markets, markets and feeling that movement every day lets you kind of have an indicator of manufacturing like in Asia. Uh, coffee, you drink it every day. So suddenly like just doing a trade, it just is something so easy now that you can do every day. And the difference is you're connecting all those dots and you're paying attention to how everything connects. So whether you're having a conversation about trends like plant-based foods, whether you're seeing new products in the grocery, new technology, all of these conversations begin to filter your mind and how it impacts the things you're trading on a personal level because you just feel it differently. And to me, when you go into an interview or when you're talking to a stakeholder, you have this awareness of what's going on at a pulse feeling that you're kind of emotionally engaged in that you just can't recreate. And to me, that, that depth will show up in every conversation you have and it gives you a lot of credibility. That final point I think is very important. As you say, it's it's because all of that formulates your market view as time goes by and it becomes second nature. You, you start to do it and then you suddenly you're, you're you know, you, you build up a pulse with the market and, you know, it's just inherited. And actually, funny enough, in, in my previous career at Hedge Fund, we, when we used to interview guys, we, well, one question I used to ask them was I would give them a list of maybe six, or seven commodities and say, where are those prices right now? Roughly, give or take. And you would be amazed the amount of guys that would just, blank look at you no idea and 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 i always honed in on the ones that had a, had a rough idea where they were look unfortunately yet again time has caught up on us gents i would love to keep chatting because I, I found this really really interesting so look wayne thank you so much for joining us today um and i really do hope that our listeners have found this podcast as insightful as i know uh, myself and tom have so thank you so much for your time thanks, thanks wayne thanks tom thank you that's it for today as always please do get in touch if you feel like you've got something different to say and you'd like to come on the podcast as a future guest if you've also got any themes topics or people that you'd like us to interview in future episodes again let me know my email address is jake at chai-uk.com if you enjoyed time for chai i'd really appreciate it if you'd subscribe to the podcast and follow us on linkedin and twitter Today's podcast was produced by Alejandro Giron of Giron & Co. Podcasting Services. Special thanks to my colleagues Stephen Butler, Chris Evans and Marcus Dixon. It was written and hosted by myself, Jake Jacobs. Have a great week. See you next time.